Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome back to Thread, episode 105. Thread, God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. In this episode of Thread, we're going to talk about the process of getting policy changed. Good, good changes in policy. Um, you know, Thread is a podcast for leaders, and what we do is we take the scriptures as our blueprint, and we look for leadership lessons from the early church, from the teachings of Jesus, from the Word of God. And we're we're looking for examples that we can follow, whether our leadership is in the school, in the home, at work, in government, in education, wherever God has us. So today we're going to talk about organizations that need change. They need change in their thinking. They need change in their policy. Uh, they need to open their mind. And so how you how you move change into an old organization. And the case study today is going to come from Acts chapter 15, verses 3 through 12. Paul and Barnabas and Simon Peter are change agents, and they are moving within a Christianity that is now at least 15 years old, uh, perhaps much older than that. And they are on the uh, inside, and they are pushing for change, especially change from the Jerusalem church. They, uh, they want to see the Jerusalem church, which has the, the highest level of authority as far as people following what the Jerusalem church says, because Jerusalem is where uh, the heart of Judaism is, and Christianity was initially a Jewish movement, and Jesus was a Jewish leader, and now it has spilled over into Gentile populations all over Asia Minor as it begins to spread across the earth. And it's important to clarify, especially one doctrine. Do Gentiles have to leave being Gentiles in order to be saved? Do they have to become first Jews? Is salvation only for Jews? You know, it's funny today to find a Jew who is a Christian is very difficult search. In those days, the question was really, can anyone but Jews follow Jesus? And so that was the battle that they were under. There were some from the conservative camp of Judaism, Jewish believers, who were uh, very much disciples of Moses, uh, more than disciples of Jesus, and they wanted to see the entirety of Old Testament ways and the entire Jewish system kept, and that what Jesus had done, they felt just added to that, and it was a benefit for those who were Jews. And uh, Paul and Barnabas and Peter and others said, really, it's not even for us to decide. God has himself decided, and Jesus has already taught on this matter, and now God is moving among Gentiles without them keeping the law. Uh, he is already doing among them everything that he does among us. So who are we to decide that they have to go back and keep the Old Testament ways? Um, and so this has become a huge battle. It's being waged out in, the out in the Gentile churches as people from Jerusalem are self-appointed, and they're going out and stirring up trouble in the minds of the, the young Gentile Christians, and Paul wants this settled. And so he calls for a conference in Jerusalem to push for institutional change. 
Now, my ordination as a minister is with the Church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee, and that group is over 100 years old. We're America's oldest continuing Pentecostal church. And, you know, after 100 years, every institution has got so many barnacles on it. You know, I hate to think, you know, there's a church of God, and I'm, I'm agonizing over uh, all the, the junk that's grown on our church in 100 years. And I think about, wow, Catholicism, Coptic church, Orthodox church, these are thousands of years old. And uh, just the battles to stay pure and uh, cut off all this stuff that gets attached to you if you're not careful. Okay, so let's jump right on into this. Last, um, in verse 3, I'll just read it. So Paul and Barnabas, being sent on their way by the church, passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. And now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel, and believe. Now, I want, to, I want to stop right there, and let me go back over some of this that we just read. If you notice what Paul is doing, he's working for change. Paul is competing for change, and that's really important. Uh, if you've ever done the Thomas Kilman conflict inventory, uh, you'll find that there's five main tools for handling conflict. And if you haven't taken that test, you really owe it to yourself to do so, you can find the TKI, as it's called, online, and it costs about $15 to get that test and take it. But uh, in every situation, there's a different tool that is the best tool for conflict. There's no one tool that, you know, they say to a man that only has a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And if the only conflict uh, tool you have is to avoid conflict, uh, that's just not going to work all the time. Because in this case, this this conflict was about the core doctrine of salvation. Are we saved by the blood of Jesus or by the works of the law? It was a huge issue. And so avoiding this was just out of the question. Paul is competing. He knows what he believes. He is himself a, a well-trained rabbi in the scriptures. He knows Jewish history. He knows Jewish culture. He knows the scriptures. He knows the teachings of Jesus. He has spent time with the apostles. And so Paul is, uh, he's a change agent. He didn't come there to see what everybody thought ought to happen. He came there to, to push. And so if you notice what he's doing in verse 3 and 4, he's building momentum. As he gets closer to Jerusalem, he doesn't just make a beeline for this meeting. And I'm sure in his heart, you know, he wanted to get to this meeting. But Paul understands the need for consensus. And so he starts building momentum by stopping, you know, a few hundred miles from Jerusalem. Paul starts doing um, town, you know, what politicians call town hall meetings. He's going to synagogues and he's going to Christian gatherings uh, and he is moving his way toward Jerusalem giving testimony services and saying, brothers, you won't believe what God is doing among the Gentiles. And he just 
tells them everything. You know, a lot of these people hadn't heard it. And so, you know, the scripture said in verse 3, they caused great joy to come to these brothers. They were not aware of what God was doing among the Gentiles. And so Paul, you know, he's moving toward Jerusalem. The Samaritans are like half Jew, half Gentile. They, you know, that's where Jesus met the woman at the well. And so there's harvest in Samaria, and Paul is teaching there. And the Phoenicians are, you know, they're half, they're not even half Jews. Uh, Phoenicia, well, there were Jewish fellowships there, but Phoenicia is a, is a Gentile area. And so Paul is, you know, he's in this uh, crossover zone where he's got like part Jewish, part Gentile churches, and he's, he's bringing them the good news, the good reports. And he gets into Jerusalem itself, and he gets a meeting with the apostles and elders, and he, he keeps the same thing going. He wants everybody to know not, not what his opinion is. That's not what he's after. Paul says this is bigger than us. God himself has already made a decision about this. We need to acknowledge the hand of God and take our revelation that God has given us and apply that to our doctrine. So Paul is telling them, verse 4, all the great things that God has done. And when he finishes, instead of just universal hallelujahs, the Pharisees within the group uh, rise up. And you know, you remember what Jesus said? Beware the leaven or the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the yeast-like influence of conservative religion. And you remember when Jesus taught that to the apostles, and they said, "What do you mean? Is it about bread?" And Jesus goes, "Ah, no. It's the influence of the Pharisees. Beware of what they do." He said, "They they bring bondage." Uh, they bring bondage, they bring hypocrisy with them. And so these guys are in the church, and they rise up, and they start, again, pushing their doctrine. They have to first be circumcised Gentiles, have to be commanded to keep the law of Moses. And then it gets more, um, it starts to boil over. You see, the Jerusalem leaders themselves were divided over this. The doctrine is not clearly enough understood even by the inner circle because they're not discerning. They're not making a difference between their culture, their upbringing, and the kingdom message of Jesus. You know, and a lot of times that's, that creates problems all over the world when we cannot um, identify the, where my culture stops and where God's doctrine begins. You know, when we pastored in the Philippines, we were there in the great outpouring of God's Spirit in the 1990s and the 2000s, when a new church was planted every eight hours, and this went on for 15 years. And I made a commitment to those people that I was going to do my very best to not teach them anything that didn't have a clear biblical foundation. And I can remember the first time that we did baptism— and I jumped into the pool, you know, and I had on uh, pants and a shirt, long sleeve shirt or some kind of shirt. And uh, I remember one of them asking me, like, what are you doing? Why are you wearing pants and a shirt? And, you know, I had never even questioned that. I had never seen anyone baptized unless they were in a robe or they were in a suit even or something that looked like a suit. You know, they were fully clothed for modesty's sake, and uh, keep it solemn. You know, well, there's nothing in Scripture about what clothes you wear 
for baptism. And, you know, they got in in shorts and T-shirts. And, uh, and I just questioned myself again. And I thought, wow, here's one more of those times when you just knew that you were right and you didn't have any reason for this, except it was how you were raised. So and that's what's happening here in Jerusalem. The Pharisees are not celebrating what's going on, and neither are some within the inner circle of the Jerusalem church. We can notice a couple things in verse 6, and that is, number one, it's corporate leadership. There are a lot of elders. There are a lot of mature people. Spiritually, there's not just one person who gets to hear this. Uh, second thing we notice is that these leaders are divided. You know, legalists always appeal, appeal to uh, fear, and they hate change, and they hate freedom, but it's a powerful poison. Um, but as in the case of all false religion, there is a root of truth. You know, there is a relationship between the Old Testament Jewish law and Christianity, and it's still being debated by sincere believers as to how far that relationship extends. I think everyone would agree that we are bound to the moral law because the moral law has not changed. Jesus actually made it more um, a, a higher law. He took us from no adultery to no lust, and no murder became no hatred. So Jesus took the law inside because the Jewish law was external mainly. It was just things you can see on the outside like most criminal law would be. And Jesus is now pointing to the condition of the heart and so uh, I think we would all agree that there is a moral law that is binding on everybody, and where that law is revealed in the Old Testament, God did that so that we can know how He thinks and how He feels. And Christian maturity means that I learn to love what God loves, and I learn to hate what God hates. Now, the question is, there's a lot of other things in the Old Testament. There are things about not mixing fabric. Uh, you can't blend fabrics in, fabric in a, um, in a garment. You cannot, uh, there's lots of food legislation. There are rules about ceremonial uncleanness. And, you know, that's one of the problems with legalism today is, you know, and, and I grew up in a church that said women couldn't wear pants, and they sure enough had a clear Old Testament verse that said, a woman shall not wear that which pertaineth to a man. But they did not enforce, you know, the next verse and the verses after that. And because there's other verses that said, and a person who is crippled may not enter the, um, the temple of the Lord. So we didn't enforce that one. They just, you know, choose, they pick which parts of the law they want to enforce again. And so this battle still goes on. Um, Peter, verse 7, rose up, thank God. And one of the things that we need to see about what's happening with Peter is, as we said last time, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul rebuked Peter for being uh, for waffling on this issue because Peter was right there with the Gentiles, eating with them, fellowshipping with them because God had shown him to do so. And then when these brothers came from Jerusalem and they started teaching legalism, Paul, uh, Peter got afraid of being uh, judged by them, and he started withdrawing, getting shy to be close to Gentiles. And Paul rebuked him on the spot in front of everybody, and Peter took it well. You know, you can see, and, and actually when Peter refers to Paul in his epistle, he calls him our beloved brother Paul. So Peter was a big man, and he could take being rebuked, and when he was wrong, he was wrong, and he admitted it. Peter rose up in verse 7, he says, Look, I was the first man God ever sent to evangelize Gentiles. Verse 8, he said, God gave those Gentiles the baptism in the Holy Spirit 
with signs, wonders, and miracles, everything he gave us, he gave it to them without the law. He did not require them to keep the law in order to speak in other tongues and have the miraculous power of God released among them. God did not put that on them, and he didn't tell me I had to go put that on them. Verse 9, God has recognized them with no distinction between the Gentile brothers and us. Their hearts have been approved as clean, not by the law, but by faith. And Peter now frames the action of the Pharisees among them as rebellion against God's clear actions. Uh, He points them out. He says, now, why do you test God? You know, this whole debate that you're holding is not honoring God. You are honoring your point of view. You can see what God is doing all over the world. Why are you tempting God? Why are you being rebellious against God? He says, why would you put a yoke on the neck of these disciples, a yoke which neither our fathers nor ourselves have been able to bear? Think about it. Peter says, we have found the law to be a burden. We have found the legal path to salvation, constantly worrying, inevitably failing God over and over and over again. Now look at verse 11. Peter now states to them what the original Christian doctrine has always been. Peter says, but we believe, we, we Christians, we followers of Jesus, believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Not a different path, not a Jewish path that requires all the Jews to keep the law, and a Gentile path that gives Gentiles a different path. Peter says there is one path to God, and it is grace. It is not the, um, we're not even saved through our faith. Our faith becomes a work. It's grace. It is God's grace that brings us salvation. It is God's mercy that brings us salvation, God's kindness in Christ that brings us salvation. And we need to celebrate that, uh, what Jesus has brought to us. And when that grace has brought salvation, yes, we grab that grace by faith. We believe in that grace and we pull it to ourselves. And Peter says, this is not Paul's doctrine. This has always been our doctrine. Salvation is from God. It is not from us. Salvation is about God's self-revelation, His way of saving us, not our human religious tradition. And I love verse 12. It says, then all the multitude kept silent. Wow. Authority, spiritual authority. When Peter spoke, they could not deny his words and the logic of his words. And then Paul and Barnabas, this is the first time that we see Barnabas mentioned in this situation. And notice that Barnabas is mentioned first, and that's a good move too. Barnabas is the one that the Jerusalem church has always respected. It was Barnabas, you recall, who first sold his property and gave it to the, to the apostles to give to people who had need. He started that, you know, that tradition among the church. He's been there from the very beginning. So when Barnabas is mentioned first, we realize that you know that's a that's an indication that Barnabas became the leading speaker. You know, Paul can be um, a little too confrontational sometimes, and this was a situation. I love their I love their partnership. You know, 
because there's times that Barnabas is needed, and Paul knows to lay back, let Barnabas talk. And then there's times that Paul needs to go to the front because this is a, a situation for battle. But this was about church unity, and we don't need unnecessary conflict in the church. And so Barnabas begins to speak, and Paul begins to join in. They speak about the experiential revelation of God. We have God in Scripture. We have God also uh, revealing Himself, just like in Scripture. God reveals Himself through, this is a great word, wonders. In the Greek, it's the word teros. It means an unexplainable phenomenon. It's an unexplainable phenomenon that serves as an omen, as a portent. It causes us to stand in awe and realize that this is so much bigger than us and that we really have stepped into the supernatural world somehow. And the supernatural world has broken into our world. Now, they were not afraid to use experiential revelation as a way to form doctrine. They did not, it was not the, uh, the soul form. You know, there was no way that they would just go to a new doctrine based on somebody's experience. But they were not afraid to use it as evidence of what God was doing. You know, God himself has done it. Miracles, signs, and wonders make us stand in awe. We know we can't do these things ourselves. So when God among us, all of us with the right doctrine, all of us with our hearts Right before God, when God does something truly miraculous, because we call a lot of things miracles that aren't, uh, but there are real miracles. So any branch of Christianity that wants to remove miracles from the Christian faith and think that they are somehow more pure because they're going to be the Christianity without miracles, well, Pentecostalism is not a branch of Christianity. It is the root of Christianity, the belief that there are, There is a living God who has invaded this fallen physical world, and He is experientially changing people's lives. He is raising dead people. He is healing sick people. He is breaking bondage off of people. Demons are being cast out. That's the New Testament church. That's not a baby church. That's the church. It's the only church there was, and it's the only church there is. This is God's church. It's God's global church, not a denomination, not a part of Christianity. This is the heartbeat of God because the kingdom message says not by smoke, not by ritual, not by liturgy, but by the finger of God, salvation is being brought to us and that God is at war with the demons and the darkness, and He is fighting to set men free. And you just cannot have a biblical Christianity that divorces itself from the miraculous. God is at work. And that was, in the end, you know, the end of the day, we'll, we'll come back to this in our next lesson, but the argument of Paul's experience and Peter's experience and the clear revelation of God through what he has done What Jesus taught, what the Old Testament has taught, has been validated as God is bearing witness through signs and wonders. So let's work in our institution. Some of you may be in a a young institution, or you may be out there today and you're serving in an old institution and you're trying to keep the the fires alive. Well, God bless you as you work for denominational renewal and church renewal and as you work to bring the the living fires of God into the old traditional ways. Thank God for our traditions, but they can really be a problem sometimes.
Well, if you would do me a favor, if you enjoy the Thread Podcast, would you please give us some love? Go to quinley.com slash love and write us a post on your Facebook. Uh, you'll see a populated uh, area there that you can just type in and they'll go to your page. And if you go to quinley.com slash iTunes, you can give us a rating on the iTunes network and that will help lots of people know about the Thread Podcast. And if you've got a question, I would love to start taking some questions. And if you've got a question, would you just go to quinley.com slash question and uh, put your question in right there and we'll get to it. Um, that's all for now. See you next time on the Thread Podcast. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Log on to quinley.com. Thread.